Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, we are in a series on the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and um, this morning we'll be in First Samuel 17. Quite a famous uh, passage. Uh, it's it's a rather long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing out loud. Uh, so I'll, I'll catch us up on the beginning, and then we'll start reading at 31. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. He sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. If you don't know who this Philistine is, uh, if your little title on your Bible didn't clue you in, this Philistine is, is Goliath. Um, Goliath is the champion of the Philistines, this giant man that goes out and stands before Israel and taunts them and humiliates them and dares anyone to come and fight him, and nobody will. So David the shepherd boy happens to be there delivering food to his brothers, and he hears this Philistine profaning the name of God and humiliating Israel, and David asks his brothers, you know, why didn't anybody go take care of this business? And uh, his brother tells him to shut his mouth because he's annoying, basically. Um, and David says, I'm just saying, why didn't anybody take care of this? And Saul hears the way that David talks about this Philistine. And Saul said to David, um, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of, a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you came, come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, 
Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know, may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim, Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not a silent creation of our own hands, but you are the speaking God who speaks to his people. We pray, God, that by your word, our own stony hearts would be softened, that we would be pierced by your own word, that we would come into confrontation with the living God. Shape us and make us in the image of your Son, to the glory of your name. Amen. This is, uh, this is maybe, maybe the most famous story of the Bible, popularly speaking. It's got to be at least top five, I would say. David and Goliath. It's become shorthand that we use to describe all kinds of things so that people can even use the phrase David and Goliath without even having any idea maybe what the story is all about. Um, for example, I am not a big fan of college basketball. Um, I'm not from North Carolina, so I know that's heresy here, but I just get over it. It's terrible basketball. But it's, uh, it's NCAA tourney time. I know I just lost half of you. Come back. Just come back. Um, it's NCAA tourney time, and even I, uh, college basketball uh, ambivalent, I don't care. Um, even I know that a number one seed lost to a number 16 seed for the first time. Uh, University of Virginia lost to some place called the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, and they killed them. Uh, they beat them by 20. And not, not improbable that you heard this described as a David and Goliath scenario. This tiny little school beat the number one team in the country um, <clears throat> by, by quite a margin. 
This is a David and Goliath story, right? It's it's the story of the underdog rising up and defeating the more powerful power. Um, We get that language from David and this idea of the underdog prevailing, it's, it's kind of a, a national myth in our country that, that we love. We love this kind of story. Um, you know, that's how we talk about our own history. Here we are, these uh, American rabble rising up and defeating the powerful English army. We, like, the underdog story is tied up in our DNA as a nation. So David and Goliath is like, our wheelhouse. And my suggestion to you is that if and when we read the story of David and Goliath as this majestic story of the underdog rising up and winning, we are not listening to the story and we are missing the point. In fact, David himself would likely say, this is, what are you talking about? This is not what's going on. Because David is helping us here to rightly see the world. And what David is doing, actually, as an Israelite, is saying, uh, this is not an underdog scenario. Things are not going as they should. They are going unexpectedly. David is uh, a shepherd boy at this point. He is 17 to 20 years old, commentators think. He is probably under the age of 20 because he's not in the army. He should be there along with his brothers, but he's not there, so that tells us he's probably too young to be expected to be there. So he's been working in the fields, and his dad uh, sends him with supplies for his brothers. And here the the story kind of picks up some resonances with the story of, of Joseph, and will continue to pick up these resonances throughout the book that We're calling back here to the story of Joseph in Genesis. And similarly, Joseph was a younger son, and he's sent to go take provisions to his brothers, and a whole lot of bad things are going to follow after this story today. But David carries these provisions, and his brothers are standing there with the rest of the armies of Israel. And what's happened is the Philistines have made incursions. They've come deep into Israelite territory. And we've seen this a couple times already in the book of Samuel that, that there are all these reversals that are happening. What is supposed to happen is not happening. Israelites keep fleeing from their enemies and making an exodus away from the promised land because the Philistines or others keep in making these incursions onto the land. And here the Philistines are deep in Israelite territory. And instead of the Israelites pushing them out, they are running away. And here David finds himself on these battle lines looking at these Philistines and this giant appears. This giant named Goliath. And the description of him is that he's a giant man. He's like nine feet tall. He's a big guy. It's a really strange scenario because we don't even have a lot of records of ancient Near Eastern people fighting battles this way. Maybe it's because you don't have giants everywhere laying about, but I guess when you do, this is a great way to go about fighting your battles. So they're looking at this huge guy, and the the strange thing is, they have a kind of giant on their side too. The chief qualification or descriptor of Saul the king was that he was very tall. 
So they, maybe he's not Goliath tall, but they've got their own tall guy on their team. And Saul is like kicking it in the back, just saying, man, I hope we figure this out somehow. Saul does not seem particularly motivated to do anything except offer rewards. Like, look, if somebody could go take care of their tall guy, I will definitely pay you very well. That's, that's where Israel's tall guy is at this point. And the text spends a good deal of time telling you how scary Goliath is. It will give you a full paragraph earlier in chapter 17 about the nature of his armor and how big and how heavy it is. And what's interesting is the way that the language describes the armor is that it uses this language of scales. And it'll just say scales in, English, in Hebrew, and it'll probably translate it for you differently in English. Now, we know what they're talking about. They're talking about interlocking rings of, of armor that you can find in all kinds of drawings. But, but it just keeps, it says scales. And the imagery, one commentator, Peter Lightheart, says is, you're supposed to see Goliath as this giant snake in the middle of the garden that is Israel. And here, the powers of the serpent are invading the good land of Israel. And no one will deal with him. And he's there begging to defeat anyone. And as he's doing it most offensively in David's mind, he is cursing the name of Israel's God, taunting Israel's God, calling his existence into question. And David is saying, we can't have this. This cannot happen. And he wants to meet this challenge head on. And David does not say, look, I know I'm the underdog here. He, there's no sense in which David says, um, look, I know we're undermanned, but if we try super hard and we're really clever about this, we can rise up and beat Goliath, the overdog, as the underdog. He's standing looking at Goliath and saying, this, this Philistine is profaning the name of the God on our home turf, and God surely must judge him. Now he goes and sees Israel's tall guy. He goes and sees Saul and says, look, I'm going to do this thing. And what is Saul's response? Saul sees this as an underdog story. He says, my dude, like, let me at least give you some armor. You know, the text has spent all this time describing Goliath's armor. Let me, let me at least make sure that you have got some armor as well. Let me put on you the king's armor. And interestingly, again, the Hebrew refers to this armor as scales. So it seems like, in a sense, that Saul has clothed himself in the same way that the enemy has clothed himself. Saul has already accepted and adopted the mentality and practices of the serpent that's loose in the land. And that is why he cowardly stands behind the lines. Because all the only way he can think about this is the way the serpent thinks. Now, 
This should be really familiar if you're like me. Because this is often the way that we deal with the world. This is happening. The only way to counter this is to do what they're doing but more. Right? This is the way the whole world operates. Well, they're spending their money on this. What we should do then is spend more money. They're building this. We should build one that's bigger or better, etc. We accept the premises that the world throws at us and says, and we say by reaction, well, we'll just do that, but better, but more on top of. You know, this is the way that we see our culture heaving back and forth. Well, if they have CNN, we've got to have Fox News. If they have the Huffington Post, we've got to have Breitbart. Like, everybody's just lobbying, throwing stones at each other. It's just the natural way of the world. And I I wish it was just them over there, but it's the way that, that I work in the world, too. You know, if somebody, if somebody comes at me, somebody thinks they can make me look foolish, my instinct immediately is, I'm going to make you look more foolish. If you come at me in your strength, I will come at you in my strength, and we will see who wins this. That is just the way of the world, by reaction and by default. So Saul, it's tempting to look at him and see him as kind of this cowardly idiot. But Saul behaves just the way that many of us do. This is the way the world works. But David here is a presentation of an alternative way of being in the world. He tries on the logic of this world. He tries on this way of thinking, this way of being. And he's just uncomfortable in this unwieldy and large armor. He cannot carry it. And he says, I won't fight this way. So how does he go into the battle? He goes as what he is. What David keeps fundamentally saying is, I am a shepherd and I will fight like a shepherd. The whole reason that I know that I can fight is because as a shepherd, I have fought and I have won. So David lays aside the armor of Saul, lays aside the scales, he sheds them, and he picks up his shepherd's staff and he he collects his weapons of a shepherd and he goes out to battle. The The whole story revolves then around what he says to Goliath. The battle is very short. Here's the battle. He throws a rock and hits him and wins. That's it. That's the whole description. There's no like, he, he slowly gathers speed and measures the angle and the velocity and jumps from rock to rock. There's, it just, he gives this speech and, like, and then he killed him and that's it. The whole emphasis is on the speech beforehand. That's the real heart of the battle. The real heart of the battle is what David says in his speech. And he says, you cannot stand before the God of Israel and blaspheme him like this. God will judge you. And it has nothing to do with the weaponry in my hands. It has to do with the strength of God 
And this is going to become at the center of David's story because in the future, David will have lots of enemies. In this book, in 1 Samuel, David will have lots of enemies, most of the time Saul. And usually we see Saul with weapon in hand, David with nothing. And his conviction is, God will deliver you into my hand because God doesn't need a sword or a spear or a javelin. You will die today, you and all your compatriots, because you cannot stand and defy the armies of the living God. So he does the simple shepherd thing, picks up a rock and throws it. Now, granted, he has a sling. He's probably really good at this thing. He could maybe throw it like 100 miles an hour. Okay, he's, he's really good at throwing rocks. But still, it's a giant covered in armor, and he hits him with a rock, and he falls down. Now, if you were like me in Sunday school, this is where the story ends, right? Yay, David, good job, underdog wins. My Sunday school teachers usually skip the part where David stands over him and chops off his head, and then they go chase armies. But look, that's what happened. He took Goliath's own sword and chopped off his head, and he like mailed the head, UPS style, to Jerusalem, which is weird for a number of reasons. Who mails heads? But it's weird, most of all, because Israelites don't live in Jerusalem yet. You may not know this. You may have not realized it, but Jerusalem is not occupied by Israel at this point. Jerusalem is occupied by these people called the Jebusites. And one day, David will go into Jerusalem and he will take it over. But when he mails the head... There's not some great collection of people, Israelites, there celebrating the victory over their enemies. David seems to be sending this head as a warning. You best know the truth. You cannot stand and defame the name of the living God, and you cannot stand before the armies of the living God. David, and never at any point acknowledges what appears to be any sort of underdog circumstance. Because he does not, in the reckoning of the battle, see himself measured against this giant. What he does instead is he measures the giant against the living God of Israel. And when he does that, he says, the scales tilt decidedly in one favor, And that is on the side of God. And it is not close. God is bigger than Goliath. God is going to win. And this is how the king of Israel should behave, right? The anointed leader of Israel. This king in the waiting. He is showing Israel what their king should act like. He has shed the serpent's skin and instead stands as the shepherd of Israel saying, this is the way that we must go. And God surely, certainly provides for him. It's important for us to read the story this way because we are prone 
to want to play the underdog card. We are addicted to this national mythos. We love this idea that if we would just pluck up our courage and behave smartly and try hard, then we too can conquer the giants in the land. But if that was David's mentality, I think the story would have gone differently. He probably would have died there. And if you too deal with whatever is in your life this way, your problems, your giants, they will slaughter you. I mean, giants, maybe you don't see any nine and a half feet tall people walk around in your life. But there are other giants that you deal with, both within and without. And you probably have any number of times in your life where you can say, you know, I was really committed to, to beating them. And what you really have is a long list of defeats. You know, I tried really hard to kick this addiction or that addiction. I really thought that if I trusted God enough or I um, did enough Christian stuff, then maybe God would bring me a, a mate. God would supply this ache in my life. And what are you left with? Oftentimes you're left with emptiness and heartbreak and it feels like that God has let you down. But the reality is that oftentimes in those equations, you've, pinched, you've hinged all your hopes on you. If I can just be as good of an underdog as David, if I can just be bold enough, if I can be courageous enough, and you figure out all kinds of Christian strategies to do that, then the giant will fall. But that is not David's argument to his brother or to Saul or anyone else in Israel. David's confidence is not in his strength. David's confidence is in the strength of God. David is for us this, this archetype, this, this window through which we can see an even better king coming. Because when we adopt David's mentality and confess openly, I cannot slay these giants in and of myself. I cannot fight this underdog story. I need the champion of Israel, God himself, to fight on my behalf. We see coming from the horizon David's descendant. The son of David, the descendant of David, will similarly fight this way. Jesus' friends will look at him and say, will you please now pick up your sword and like really kick some butt? Will you just like ruin these Romans for us? Would you fight this way, the way that they fight? Do it that way, but do it better. And Jesus confuses them. 
frustrates, infuriates them when he says, I will not fight the way that they fight. Jesus sees in Israel, in the land, the presence of this serpent. And Jesus knows that the problem has always been this serpent in the land. Jesus thinks all the way back to the beginning of the story of the garden. And all the way back to the story of, beginning of the story of the garden, the problem came, the, the story turned when the serpent entered the story and led the people down this path of distrust this commitment to being their own king, to measuring their strength in the world. And at that moment, in the very beginning of the story of the Bible, God pledged to his people that one day somebody would come and cut off the head of the serpent. And David, when he sees this serpent in the land, he gives us this sort of preemptive picture of what God yet wants to do. And he takes the serpent down and he cuts off the serpent's head and he sends it to Jerusalem. And one day, the son of David will deal with the serpent in the land by going to this place, Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And he will himself finally and fully cut off the head of the dreaded giant serpent. He will do it his way. He will do it the way of the shepherd. He will do it unexpectedly. He will do it surprisingly. He will not do it wearing the armor of the world. But he does it for the same reason that David does what he does. For the honor of God. David is compelled and driven in his speech for the honor of the name of the Lord of Israel. And Jesus' whole life revolves around this same ethic. He will teach his disciples to pray for the glory of of God. He will avail himself to his Father to even suffer what he does not wish to suffer because it is what God wants to vindicate his name in the world. Jesus goes to the cross on the place of the skull to do for his people what none of us can do for ourselves. We stand and we cower before this towering giant in the land. And you and I are either probably both at the same time or in different times. We are either compelled to be like the serpent or we cower under his tyranny. We are totally enslaved to this dominating giant in the land. The thing that you think of when you think of this tyranny, addiction, loneliness, whatever it is, that thing is woven inside of you and outside of you. It has trapped you on the inside and is draped like a net on the outside of you and you have no way out. 
And the story of Christianity, the story of life with Jesus, is not an underdog story where you must buck up and be better and figure out somehow to overthrow the giant in front of you. If that was the message of this text or of any part of the Bible, we would all be doomed. None of us can properly measure our strength against this giant. We would all be deeply in trouble. You cannot read the Bible as this long list of instructions of how to be a better person. It's going to tell you in a number of ways that you desperately need help. There is no underdog story here. This is the story of all of us. And this is the story of the strength of God. I don't know what opposes you in your life. I don't know what kind of sin it is. I don't know what kind of sin has been done to you. I don't know what sin comes out of you and what sin comes upon you. I don't know what things, those things are that victimize you and oppress you and what things you give over to your oppression. I don't know. And I can't tell you, look, if you just pray this prayer, if you trust enough, then, you know, tomorrow you can be free. I'm not up here to tell you that if you just believe Jesus enough, if you just trust him enough, then all your poverty is going to be gone, all your ill health is going to be gone, all your addictions are going to be gone. That's not how it works. And if that's all you're here for is to figure out the formula to kind of get what you want, then, man, that's not on offer today. That's not what this text is about. That's not what the Bible is about. I don't know the time scale of when God will fully deliver you and rescue you from all these things that plague you, but I do know that if you are caught up in those things and you are losing hope, my message to you, I believe the good news of the gospel is, is that you are not capable of saving yourself and God has done everything that is necessary to save you and will still be, will be sufficient until the end of your life. You, you may try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and marginally get better little bits at a time for your whole life and you may still feel for so long that you don't know if you're doing well enough and the gospel will still be good news to you. That you never were able to be good enough. You were never, never able to kill this giant. And God always, always, always was able. When you look at your life and, and you feel your own weakness in your bones... You feel the sadness of your sin. That is the moment to look to the cross. Because Jesus is your great champion. The moments when you see your failure most clearly is when you should also see the cross before you. Those moments when you say, oh, I could not have failed God any worse. He has he saved me so many times. That is the moment when you need to see the cross again. 
Because even this, in the depths of your darkness, even this is the place where God is coming to be your champion. This is not an underdog story. This is the power of God on display. What you and I need is the power of God. Have you confronted the power of God in your life? Do you, do you kind of labor under your own means? Do you work hard under your own strength? You can do that and call yourself a Christian, or you can do that and say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. That temptation can plague you on any side of the spectrum. You can be a church person. You can be not a church person. When you look at the problems of your life, do you flex your muscles and say, I must fix this? No matter where you are in the spectrum of faith, look this morning on the cross of Jesus. Look at it. This is David's son, the real and true king, stretched out before you saying that he will be your champion. Have you tasted of the grace and goodness of God, which is the power of God for salvation? Do you see the resurrected Lord Jesus as your only hope? We are doing this catechism with my kids, this question and answer means of of teaching the faith. And the first question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. We are not our own but we belong to God. Do you belong to God? Do you trust Him in His belonging? This morning, if you do not belong to God, give up staring at that giant and saying, man, i got to figure out a way to take this joker down. Give it up. It's not going to happen. You're not going to do it. You're going to try and you're going to fail again. And this morning, if if you say, I've done that, I don't know, things are still not going great, you need to remember that. You are not your own, but you belong to God. And He is your only and sufficient hope. And He will not fail you. His strength will not fail. He will save you again and again and again. Because he has the strength to do so and is not scared of any giant in the land. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is nothing that can be arrayed against you, no enemy that can line up on the other side that cannot be defeated by you. That ultimately, the things that plagued us most deeply, sin and death, they are the enemies that you sought to kill, you sought to destroy. 
God, forgive us of the, the delusion that we were meant to be the hero of our story, that we were meant to, to be clever enough, skilled enough to figure out how to defeat this powerful enemy. We are not David in this story. We are the ones on the sidelines. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will humble our hearts. Make us clear about our size and our strength, our proficiency. And help us to open our hands and say that we need you. God, I pray for all of those who are here along the spectrum of faith, from not trusting you at all to people who followed you for a long time. God, I pray that you'll help them to see clearly and rightly the presence of the enemy in their life. And God, instead of being trapped and locked in despair, they would see you on the cross and see before them their eternal, their final victory. God, help us all to move closer to you. Carry us closer to you. It is in your strength that we rest. It is in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.